Hi, I'm John Covington, Chief Steward of the Memphis Police Association. I'd like to welcome you again to our show, the MPA Show, Everyday People. Uh, today's May 12, 2021. We're excited to have a special guest today. It's uh, Mike Lee, former uh, Deputy Chief of the Memphis Police Department, a man of a rich history and a very interesting guy that we're going to really enjoy talking to. So he fits into uh, the focus of our show, which is everyday people to hear their stories, to hear the stories of the community, to hear stories of everybody from Memphis. And so as we weave this web of who we are as a city. So today we look forward to talking to Mike and uh, we're glad you're here with us. want to take this opportunity to, to welcome you Mike and uh, so you're retired deputy chief from the Memphis Police Department when did you retire January the 2nd uh, 2020 uh, 2006 2006 and uh, so now you're president of acre and I'm, I can never remember the acronym it's the Association of City Retired Employees that's it, Acre, right. And uh, you know, we work together a lot because uh, of course, working down here with the officers and issues, retirees, and of course we touch base a lot. But um, before we got into any of that kind of thing, I wanted to talk to you about, well, when did you come on the job? I came on March 4th, 1968. Uh, I was born May 3rd, 1969. So you came on right before I was born and I'm 30. Oh wait, I'm 52, I forgot. <laughs> so uh, a lot of things have changed. And so, I mean, what made you decide to join the police department? What were you doing before? I mean, what was the path that led you? Well, I'm a lifelong Memphian. Uh, I was born at the old Methodist Hospital and uh, we lived on 1145 Coker Street, right down off of Chelsea. Okay. And dad, when he came back out of World War II, he told his father, he said, uh, Papa, I'm not going to follow any more mules. So he left the farm in Ripley, Tennessee, and come to Memphis, and he went to work for the IC Railroad. And in 49, they opened up International Harvester, and he went to work with them. Well, we, the minute he got there, we moved to Frazier. Okay. And it was my brother and I, it was just the two of us. And uh, I graduated from Frazier High in 62. Uh, I had my first son in 63, my second son in 64. I was a musician. My brother and I were in bands together. And, uh, what kind of uh, what kind of music? It was the rock and roll and the crossover. We did a lot of the big band stuff as well as the 50s stuff, 50s right, and right. 60s. And uh, that was, uh, I had a job at uh, Ellis Bagwell Wholesale Drug Company down on Front Street. And I made a dollar and thirty-five cents an hour. That's how much. And uh, I went to uh, work with Jack Marshall, and I was making like a hundred and twenty-five dollars a month. So uh, that was—I uh, mean, a week. So that was giving me about a five hundred dollar a month salary, but I had no benefits. Right. So they—I put in an application with the Memphis Police Department, and. It's ironic what I got questioned on then was why was I coming to work for the police department and taking a cut in salary? Because my starting salary would be around 425. Right. 
And the deal was that, hey, I didn't have any benefits. And I had two children and everything else. So how, how old were you? About 23. 23. So you were established father of two. Um, no, I wasn't established. I'm going to tell you what. It, <laughs> it, it was just uh, uh, I, I felt like I was going. Uh, I didn't feel like I had a lot of control in my life. Right. I was young. I, I really got married probably too young. I think my wife would say she got married too young. Too. But the point is, is uh, I, I took full responsibility for my family, and I tried to do anything I can to make it better for them. And of course, they came up with what I would think would be the ideal life plan: all the sports and all that stuff. Right. One of them's a pastor now in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, and the other one's a captain for FedEx on a pilot. Oh really? So nice. they did well. I said we got hung up in the alphabet. We couldn't get out of pilot, police, or preacher. <laughs> but you know, it's interesting too. So, what was uh, kind of driving you? Sounds like was uh, the the benefits, the economic, the stability of it in the career. That's what first kind of made you decide to do it. Or had you grown up? You know, my, my father grew up. Uh, he's he's a little bit older, but listening to the watching the serials um, at the movies, listening to the radio. Now, he, he became a journalist because of that, and a lot of those shows were the, you know, the journalists out there, and, and of course, many other shows were the detectives and police. Did that have any impact, or was it purely just kind of finding a career? I had a uncle that was on the Memphis Fire Department. He hired on in 1949, and uh, then I had a cousin that was on the Memphis Police Department who would hired on in 19, I want to say 53 or 54. So I had family involved in city government. Okay. And then dad, when he went into with the International Harvester, that was under a local. And uh, so I was used to, uh, back then it was bad. They struck every two or three years, it looked like. Uh, <clears throat> but. I was I had grown up in that, and he always preached to my brother and I, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, to get benefits so it would take care of your family and all. And it's ironic when I went on in '68, the next year my brother went on the Shelby County Sheriff's Department, and he retired from there uh, as a lieutenant. Uh, he's deceased now, but the point is, is we both went into the uh, where we thought we had stability and all for. And, and let me tell you what, working for the city of Memphis. Uh, did I have some bad times? Yeah, but I have a lot more good memories of that. Uh, and I felt like I had an obligation to the citizens of the city because they put me through college, they put my two sons through college. Uh, they gave us, you know, a comfortable life. What else can you ask from an employer? Now, there were some issues that, as we went through my career, got changed. Right. Well, because you came on prior to... Uh the creation of the uh, the union or the association, right. the NPA. Right. So, I mean, I guess there, there's kind of two things I'm interested in talking about. One is you're just kind of the journey, what it was like to be a police officer back then and then moving to the ranks. And also, I guess the, the sub thing is, what was it like prior to the MOU, prior to the association and kind of protections offered uh, by that? The... When I came on, uh, we had to wear a coarse wool coat. It, it was a vest, mm -hmm. white shirt, tie, vest, and the coat. 
and you had the police hat, the old-fashioned one, and I'm talking about it was a heavy-grade wool, and you wore that winter and summer, and you better have that hat on if they saw you driving down the street and all. And it was, it had passed the paramilitary portion going into, it was very uh, oppressive in times, is how to do it. Uh, you couldn't roll your sleeves up when you had to wear a long sleeve shirt during the summertime. It could be at 100 degrees out there, and you'd have to have that long sleeve shirt down. Oh, so you had to have this perfect appearance at all times. At all times. How about the equipment you were wearing? How heavy was I it? I had no police walkie-talkie, mm -hmm. nothing like that. All we had was the unit in the car, and uh, that presented a, a enormous problem. You had to be sure where your partner was. You had to uh, have almost have eye contact on everything because you didn't want to get away, so you don't know if you'd hear him yelling or anything else. And I'm using the term he because when I came on, there were no females in the in the squad cars. Right, right. Uh, in fact, it won the year before, or maybe two years before I came on, they started letting the meter maids come into the detective division. They they transferred. They never came through the squad car at that point back then. And uh, we did have uh, integrated cars uh, that was going on. Uh, and, and this was early 60s, or late 60s, 60, rather. It was uh, late 60s. March of 68. Okay. See, when I came in on March 4th of 68, my, I was in a different world. I'm, I'm telling you now, the city of Memphis was totally different than it was April 4th of 68. Right. April 4th, 68, that Thursday night, we a bunch of us were studying because every Friday morning you took a test. If you didn't pass that test, you were out of the police academy. That was it. You didn't have a second shot or anything. And we were studying, and it came on the news that Dr. King had been shot. Right. F folks, it's unbelievable how it was going to the Armor Center Training Academy over on Avery the next morning. It was like I had never, I've never been in that kind of experience before. It was like a war zone. I mean, it was, uh, I was scared for my wife, my kids. Uh, I, I was scared for myself. I mean, I'm driving uh, through town. You had uh, things that were burning and all, and uh, Memphis changed. That shot destroyed a lot. It destroyed Dr. King and all but it also destroyed a lot in this, uh, this country. Now, I don't know that, I'm not certainly going back to always say it was so much better back then. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that there was a, a, cat, a catalytic difference in everything on April 4th, or April 5th, really, mm -hmm. than it had been on April 4th, uh, other than that. <clears throat> we had to go 14 weeks to the academy, and I didn't get out until June. And the next three or four academy groups, they had to get manpower on the street. We went to uh, seven-week classes. Now, just now, were cars integrated before Dr. King came? Had that already happened, or was that uh, something in, that happened? In, no, it was in a limited deal. Uh, okay. There were uh, uh, officers. We had walking patrols, some. And there was a lot of community policing back in that time. Uh, you know, I, I better not say absolutely. My class 
had integration in it because we had and some fine officers. Uh, one of them went on up to chief like me. Only two people in my class came out that finally made chief thirty something years down the road. But uh, uh, I just don't remember that as being the issues uh, so much on the car part. Right. I do remember the females. There was a lot of upset over that when they decided they let the first female officer ride in the car. And then you, you come to 2021, we're about to have our first uh, female police chief. Exactly. It just shows you how how far we've come. Oh, and, we've come an enormous way. And, uh, and uh, you know, I've worked with, you know, many female officers, and, of course, they, they work as hard, do a great job, and, and I, so I, many of our great leaders have been. I guess I came on at a time, or maybe it was the way I was raised. I've never had any kind of issue with any uh, officer on this job that related to race or sex. Well, I just, I just, right. my deal was let's do the job and protect each other because I wanted to go home at night. Exactly. And they did too, let's face it. Well, and, that, and that's one of the things that's always struck me about you individually. I mean, especially from, you know, the time period you came, you've always been such a, I don't know, I won't even call it progressive, but just such a good person that that stuff never really entered your mind. You know, it was just people were people. and. And I've always respected that. Now, I, I guess uh, here's another question. I look at those pictures back from that period. Were you guys even wearing vests at that time? No, no, we didn't get vests till. I remember my first vest was <clears throat> a piece of white material with panels in it. And I think you could put two panels in the front and two in the back. But uh, I, I know I didn't get that till uh, late 80s or early 90s. Wow. I mean, no, we didn't. Wow. Uh, f most happiest day I ever had was when they made the security squad first entry on, I mean, uh, not the security squad, but the uh, tax squad be the first entry on things. You know, we got to the scene and held it down and then let them come to go in. Right. So, yeah. but, but prior, you guys with no vests, with six yeah. shooters, is six understand. Six. I mean, it's like the uh, Texas Rangers or something. I went down to a burglary down on... Uh, Chelsea and uh, oh, I can't think right where Chelsea and Jackson crossed down there, and I went in there looking around because we had to make entry and everything, and a cat jumped off the boxes there. I like to shot the cat, <laughs> I like to shot myself. I scared to death, uh, and I was so thankful. And they said we're gonna hold the building for the tax squad, right, <laughs> or the dog men or something. I was glad for anybody else going yeah. in. <laughs> So, so here you are. You're you're out there driving and around. You got all this heavy stuff on. Um, no air conditioning. No air. Oh well, it doesn't get hot in Memphis. What do you? Oh my goodness! It, it was uh, it was could get miserable. I can imagine. I, there were times I took two shirts to work because you just get four or five hours into the shift, you you weren't human to be around people. <laughs> what? Well, I guess uh, another thing I was going. You said uh, there was a lot of community policing back then so right. you know these days everybody agrees that community policing is a good thing but and I agree with it too but of course you ask five people you'll get five different answers as to what community policing is now to my view when I was on the streets it was always this being available interacting with the business owners the people out in uh, you know mowing their yards or sitting right. on the porch and uh, just trying to get to know the community and, and get them to know me. So what was it like 
you know, back then, were you walking beats every now and then? Was it all? Well, we had the walking beats. I, I remember we had the uh, walking on Main Street uh, before it turned into a mall. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, what they were trying to reach in, in some of the communities was was to put a, a face out of that car on the police. Mm-hmm. And uh, we played for a little uh, gymnasium deal or a little police band uh, for a summer rock concert for them and all. And we were always doing things like at basketball. Uh, I think it was Howard Terry, I think. He ran the boxing program for years. Uh, he was a police officer and ran it for the uh, community children. And it was trying to just reach them and put a face on them and be like a, a probably a poor mentor because we were all white. But, but we were trying to reach and touch them and let them know pretty much what you said this show's about. Hey, we're just human beings. Yeah, we got a gun on, mm-hmm. but the gun to me was like a hammer or it was like a, a calculator that you took to work. It was a tool. Right. It, in my case, it was a tool that the Lord never required me to use. Did I ever have to pull it? Yes, but thank God I never had to pull that trigger. Right. And uh, that's the greatest thing about my career. I mean, 38 years and walk out of here and you didn't have to hurt anybody. Right, right. Um, But I know that wasn't everybody's way to get out of. But the deal was to reach the children and let the children know. You know, I I believe in what the Bible says about raising your children up and they'll, they'll know the Lord as they go through life. Right. Well, it's pretty much the same way. You raise any child, if you raise them with some compassion, with uh, fellowship and other things, you'll develop a different child than you would if you go out there and it's me and them, right? Or us right. or you, whatever else. You know, get rid of all those pronouns and all and come back in and just say, hey, we're all human beings, we're all under God's eye and we need to try to get through this life, you know, as best we can. I, I couldn't say it much better. You know, my thinking always is, I think you get in trouble whenever you start saying they. Now, they could be a gender, they could be a race, they could be a profession, like the police, they do this, or this group does that. Right. When, once you get to they, that's when problems happen. And if you, what you're talking about getting back to a we, you know, we're all in this together trying to do the best we can. And it's so interesting that, you know, we've had through the years different upheavals, but we're, we're getting back and talking about tried to get back to doing exactly what you were saying get out there be real people uh, you know just be one out there and show uh, offer opportunity and and just you know be the same you know under the eyes of God and so that that's uh you know that never goes away and that, that to me has always been the answer and will always be the answer I just don't want anybody to ever look at me as the enemy right you know, because then I'll start looking at them as the enemy. Right, right. And where do you stop, just like this issue going over in uh, uh, Israel now and with the, uh, the Gaza Strip and all? Somebody's got to say, hey, we can't, this ain't helping any of us. Right. I, I don't know the answer to that, and I'm not that type of person <laughs> that could make that answer. But in Memphis, you've got to have a sense of compassion about what you're doing. And, and it can go both ways. You, you just have to remember that, hey, 
this person grew up different than you. They know things different than you. They may know a lot more than you. But you just you're still men and women, and you need to be respectful of each other. Right. Well, I couldn't say it better myself. Um, let's get to this uh, since this is the MPA, and you know you you know so much of the history. Do you remember when the Memphis Police Association started? I believe it was seventy three, seventy four, and what kind of uh, brought that on? That that need to to create an association. There, there were a lot of good commanding officers back then. Sure. There was a lot of good politicians, just as they are now. But then, as in anything, I don't care what the organization is, there's going to be that percentage that are marching to a different drumbeat mm -hmm. or, or have set out in their minds how things are going to be, and they're not going to take anybody else's insight or anything. It had gotten to the position back during those times where uh, when, when you, you went to court, you had to go up to home, you had to get on your uniform, you had to drive to, to the courthouse, you had to wait in the courthouse, you had to go in to testify, and you might get one hour and drive back home and get ready for your shift or something else. You, you didn't get any time or anything, so when you earned eight hours, you were going to use it tied onto your days off or something, so you'd have a three-day weekend or some family gathering. Well, they'd come in at roll call and said, Lee, I see you earned a, another hour on your uh, court time. You have eight hours now, so take off tomorrow. So just no control. Was no, you, did, you just took off. And then they would come in and they'd tell you to be at work at, 30 minutes before, and it was 30 minutes before work. You had to be there. So if I had a six to two shift, I had to be there at uh, 5.30. And uh, we didn't get a cent for that. Right. And then they'd call you in and get you off the street by two o'clock. And you was there another 30 minutes or so afterwards. They didn't care. There was no effort of trying to stagger or anything where you only worked. So you worked. Uh, really nine-hour days, and when you put on your driving times, you were probably up at 10 hours in some people in working. And how about where, uh, it's a, the shift or where you worked? You had no control over that. I was going to say, could they come in and say, tomorrow, Lee, I need you to be they, they here could, They could send you the, uh, anywhere, mm -hmm. and they could tell you tonight that you're going to be working here tomorrow, or they need you over on this shift tomorrow. You know, there was no control on it. Uh, the people they didn't like, they wound up in two different jobs. They were either working in the city jail, or they put them, there was old, used to be on the old bridge across the Mississippi, there was a, a little house out there, and you could stand there guarding trucks all day as I, they crossed the bridge. So that or was, you had the paint crew. That was another punishment detail. Right. If you came in that day and you knew you were following that paint truck or leading him, really, and all, there was ways they'd get to you. Seniority didn't mean nothing to right. you. Right, and I, I think I've seen the picture of that little uh, guardhouse by the end. If, if I can get hands on it, maybe we can put it up. But, yeah, I mean, so they could just mistreat you, and if, let's say, uh, commanding officer didn't like you, he could make your life hell, I'm, it, I assume. It was true. For they, uh, thank God, the probably 98% of the officers I ever worked for were decent people. Right. But I had some that I, I felt sorry for. 
Now, on the other side, there's always going to be that officer that knows it all. His way is the only way, and here's how it's going to do. Y'all probably never met those people before. No, we've never had. <laughs> so uh, I've never had a so, commanding officer like that. But we that tried to get along on the outside, we got the flag too when it went down. Well, so. Uh, and it, well, it's, you were, you had one side here. You were in that position, and at the end of your career, you were uh, up there in the, the, the management the, side. Well, in the penthouse there as a deputy chief. And uh, so, what was that like? You know, you would. This was an old Fraser boy that went too high, because <laughs> <laughs> it was a whole different world. Uh, my my greatest fun on this job was when I was over uh, riding the critical fatal car. Mm -hmm. Not for the fact of having to deal with people when they had lost their lives or anything, but in trying to protect their rights and other because I got involved in it, worked on it, went to uh, Northwestern University and became a technical traffic accident person. Mm -hmm. And I, I got to use that maybe, I went through there in 77 and got promoted in 82 and never served another day in traffic. Really? So, you got <laughs> I got all that training and all, but that was a fun time in my career. The uh, And I've had some good assignments. I started out a, a radar car, accident car, motorcycles. I went into the uh, vice squad. Uh, I served in general assignment. Uh, I went into uh, auto theft. Uh, head of the uh, inspector over uh, South Precinct uh, and then became chief of detectives. And there were some other things. I ran security for the Wonder Series. Y'all probably don't even remember that oh, series. Yeah. But I went to uh, Istanbul with the Tokapi dagger handcuffed to my wrist because uh, when Mayor Harrington signed the contract, he promised that wherever the artifacts went, Memphis police would be with them not realizing when I crossed that river there, I didn't have no authority. <laughs> when I left the city limits, I really didn't have any authority. <laughs> but I went to Rome, uh, carried the uh, Etruscan exhibit back to Rome, Italy. Had a chance to meet the Pope at that time, but he had broke his leg skiing, I think. And so I had some, really some super nice times. Uh, so you literally had this thing handcuffed to you like they do in the movies uh, yeah it was uh, 10 million dollars wow. and the daggers about that long the story is they carried it our people here put it in gloves on handled it and put it in a plexiglass now put it down with secure locks put it in a wood box I think probably weighed 100 pounds they'd like to kill me when we got over there I'll never forget we went to the Topaki uh, palace there and they had a, a just a guy that works there. He came there, took his shoes off, he had his socks on, opened up that, picked it up with his bare hand and hung it on to look like a clothesline thing. And that was how they displayed it. Now we had handled it like it was. <laughs> everything was- they like it's radioactive. And yeah. just hanging on a, a clothesline. It, it was just, and it's probably still there. And they had birds that were flying in the Tokapi uh, Palace. Interesting. So, but it was a good time. And then going down the streets of, of Istanbul, they had uh, 
armed machine gun guys in cars behind us following us. So, and when we got there, we only had to, we only had the dagger for the city of Memphis. The rest of the exhibit we took elsewhere in this country, but for that, we had to take it back. When we got back, uh, uh, he just passed away recently. Glenn Campbell and I were sitting there and they had us in this little room with armed guards and they said, uh, you took 236 boxes when you left and you come back with one and it became an international incident. They had to get with ICRA to understand that we only were required to bring this one back. We could keep the other in, in the United right. States, but we were under arrest technically. Really? <laughs> for right then. Well, I don't know how many officers could say they've been involved in an international incident. So that, did you put that on your resume? Well, the next a... morning when I got up, I looked out and there was battleships out in the uh, Bosphorus there because that was when, uh, I think it was President Bush did the no-fly zone. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, I saw some international, and people over there don't think of the Americans like we think of the Americans. Well, sometimes I wonder how I think about the Americans myself, but I can imagine. But these are things I got to do. Sure. Uh, Joe Hope, uh, he's been gone for several years, but when he got him, uh, promoted to inspector, he recommended me for that job. Wow. And uh, it really uh, uh, it gave me an insight into things I didn't know. I can imagine. So, I, you know, because you got to experience so many uh, things in your time, you know, as you said, some exciting, some good, some some bad. Um, you saw the creation of the, the association, and you also saw the uh, the '78 strike. And uh, I did. What year did Elvis die? Was it, it was right about the same seventy seven. Seventy seven. It was a year say. prior. Uh, so, what can you remember about the what at that time in seventy seven, seventy eight? What was your position in the? Police Department at that point? I was a patrol officer. I was in traffic, mm -hmm. uh, ran the fatal car. And uh, I was the shift rep for, for the uh, association. And uh, Larry Samples, he's gone. Everybody I know is gone. Uh, but Larry was uh, in the National Guard too. Mm -hmm. Well, they immediately uh, called the National Guard up. So I took over as his chief steward job for the, I don't think they call it chief steward, but steward for, uh, for traffic. Right. So all the traffic people were under me. This had been going on for, this pressure had been building up and building up and building up. When the union came in, there were still a lot of hostilities. Uh, they didn't think the officers needed anybody to speak between management and them. Uh, yet people historically continue to abuse officers. I was going to say, the people thinking there didn't need to be anybody speaking was certainly not the officers. No, definitely the, the officers were the ones that couldn't get. Right. Nobody right. would listen to you rationally or anything. You right. were a patrol officer. Your job was to do what we told you to do. Right. When we told you and show up what we say. And that was it. Uh, I got uh, tear gassed during this earlier period here down at Pontotoc and I want to say it was Second Street. They had put me down there and I told you earlier we didn't have police radios or anything and there was a short march from uh, the Claiborne Temple down into the city hall and they were coming back 
Well, the city had gotten some new pepper foggers, and next thing I know, I heard it sound like lawnmowers running. And me and all the people were running south on that street. I, me and the black folks were together because the, I was getting tear gas just <laughs> as bad as they were. And uh, we were all buddying up with each other. Well, I imagine so. So the, those were the kind of foolish things that happened. Nobody said, hey, Lee, you're fixing to get tear gassed or nothing. We didn't have masks. We didn't have nothing. Right. Uh, and so, and, and then in '73, uh, they kept leading up and leading up to the issues. So we finally got the association. Well, '78. Let's see. So let's say probably around '75 and before that, we couldn't get any. They wouldn't give us any increase in salary or anything. Like I said, I came on in '68 at about 4:25, 4:26. And I probably wasn't making in '78. Uh, I, I bet I wasn't making a thousand dollars. It hadn't gone up much. I remember Willie B. Ingram was the uh, mayor and gave the biggest raise that they had had in a while. And that was like a hundred dollars. Wow. Other than that, you get nothing. You 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 might have got five dollars. Uh, was enough to do, you know. And, and our income. That's why we were all doing working second jobs and everything else, because you had to, to to make ends meet. I continued being a musician during that period. And uh, that's why I worked at 6 a.m. to 2 for a long time, because I'd get off of the bandstand at 1 or 2 o'clock, maybe catch two hours sleep and be at roll call. Wow. But I had to because it, it was paying for a lot for my family. And right. Too. Uh, so yeah. So, so and then in '78 they kept they kept never would increase nothing. They didn't they didn't believe we needed anything, and they kept pushing and pushing and pushing. And I think if they had just given a little, you know, maybe a twenty five cent raise or something, anything, anything. But they were determined it wasn't going to be, and they broke. They just broke it. They just couldn't take it anymore. And it was a back and forth between the fire department and the fire went out and then we didn't go out. And then we went out and then the fire voted to come out again. Right. Uh, and it was, uh, I remember over there uh, on Lamar, I was with union officers over there on the street. As I say, I took Larry Sample's position and led traffic. So I was in all the hierarchy of the, the decision making. And uh, when they came out, it, it, it was a breath of fresh air for all of us because we had finally gotten together on something. Right. And um, so as we, as we went on with the strike and all, they put out the threats on Sunday that if you're not at work on Monday, you've lost your job. And, and how, many people, how many people were on the department at that time? I don't think we had over seven, eighty, seven, ninety, somewhere like that. And how many of the seven ninety do you think went out? I mean, you, you know, ballpark. You, okay, I, I'm going to tell you there were a lot. There were some that weren't union. Okay, but on behalf of some of those guys, some went out and stayed with us the whole time. Did they? Yeah, uh, I think of one in particular. He just didn't know if he was going to lose, get back or anything. We, nobody knew any of that. Uh, some of them in, uh, enjoyed it as a party, but I had two kids I was raising. And I, so this was a real deal. You could I, lose your I, whole career. And I had 10 years on the job at this time. Right. 
and I was uh, very apprehensive, and yet I couldn't show my apprehension to my people because I'm leading them. Right, right. Uh, and I will say, uh, there were good people on that side. Uh, George Hutchison, he was the inspector of traffic at that time. He called me at home, he said, Mike, he said, I'm not calling you as the enemy, I'm just saying, is there anything I can do for any of you? Right. He said, and when we come back, we're gonna be the same, so don't, don't worry about that. So I, I was able to tell others, you know, hey, this is all past. But then you had some hostile, you had some non-union people and uh, uh, that stayed in. And uh, that, that stayed, of the strike aftermath, that was one of the biggest issues that hurt for years was were you a scab or not a scab. Right. And that was brought on by a lot of unnecessariness. Uh, they had us, uh, we were standing in front of 128 Adams the first morning of the strike. It might have been the second morning. And anyway, some of the detectives that went to work were out calling us names and everything. They were doing worse than the people on the front side <laughs> than the other people. And uh, I just, uh, it was a, whole, a lot of hostility. And there were some, I don't want to say mean or malicious, but there were some bad commanding officers that wanted to, to hurt folks. Right. Then you had some that wanted this to get rid of it, and let's go back and let's try to do right. To work it out. And work everything out. Well, you know, I think back in it, I have so much uh, respect for the courage of everybody who went out because you were risking a lot. Um, and, then, and then to be successful, in the sense that there was some major changes made and you see the MOU and uh, the association has become, you know, we work with the city, but we can bring a lot of these issues forward and solve them and and be a voice for the officers. But that wouldn't have happened, you know, unless uh, it had been pushed to that, to the limit, as you said, really, where there was just nothing. Yeah, you, you, <clears throat> one man's voice wouldn't do any good back then. Right. Uh, if Mike Lee had an idea, well, go tell it to somebody else we don't want to hear about it uh, now they they brought in the national guard of course i mean it was a huge it, it was a big deal I, you can go down on second street down there now north second and see where some of the shots in some of the buildings and all down there wow i mean they just uh and there was a blackout too <clears throat> yes at the time which and they compounding found, everything i want to say it was a uh it was a city employee that was involved in the blackout and all. Ironically, he was caught by a fingerprint that was left on the deal, but, but there were- but not a police, I, I always thought no, he, was, no, he was drunk. He might have been, but the point is, <laughs> and is you had people that were pushing the envelope every way you could. Mm -hmm. And then others were just trying to get through because they hoped there would be something on the other side of this. Right, well, they hoped they'd have a job. Yeah. Uh, much less changing, so that I mean the the current, but that uh, to me that tells you how far it had been pushed because it, it it's the same as it is today. You have the police officers are asked to go out and be independent, put their lives on the line, uh, put everything on the line, solve problems on the fly, make split second decisions, and then and then you go back to the people in charge and they treat you like you're 12 years old you know yeah. to give you no control and then they give you no <clears throat> voice and you get that kind of that's a strong 
uh, willed group of folks who are risking a lot. And I so, used to say I, I got more crap in a 15-minute roll call than I got the rest of the day. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. when I got in the squad car, I knew what my job was. I knew how to answer my calls. Uh, I, I didn't have any trouble with that. It was the junk I caught before and after. <laughs> right. But they, I remember I got called in one time by an inspector, and he was chewing me out. He said, Lee, he said, next time you have a problem on the interstate, you call one of your commanding officers. I said, with all due respect, I didn't know how to problem until you chewed me out today. Right. I had no idea. You know, I did what <laughs> I thought was right. Right. And but that's the way they were back then. Yeah. You know. So, uh, but anyway, so we, we go into that strike, and I think it was a ten-day deal. Uh, my mind is like everybody else's. So we were in the strike, and. Uh, we, we uh, my group, we assigned, well, I know what we started out. First day we were down at 4th and Court at the old precinct. It, w it was the North Precinct at that time, or the West Precinct. And then we went up to 128 Adams, and then later on in the strike we wound up at one of the firehouses because they were moving people around. And uh, then the federal courts came in and said that we were going to penalize the union uh, if it's not stopped by tomorrow, and then it turned into a wildcat. Some, Again, uh, a group of rowdiness took over, and uh, the uh, but that got the union out from having to face a fine or anything, right. because they were up there. I was there the night that uh, David Baker and them got up and tried to get to tell the guys we've got to go back and to David work. Baker was president. He was president NPA of the PMPA at that time. So they were under these constraints, and then but the Wildcat, the officers just took over. They took over. They yeah. pushed them off the trailer bed. We had, they had a trailer bed up there in front of the uh, uh, <laughs> city hall, and, and it was a chaotic incident, but that, there was no control of it. Nobody was controlling it at that point. Right. It was just a natural outpouring. It was uh, so... Uh, I don't know who got the reason and all on it, but they did come together. We did go back to work. Uh, I was in a situation being in traffic that we didn't catch the feedback or any of the hostilities that went on sometimes in some of the precincts. Right, between the, the friction. Yeah, the friction, because uh, uh, it just wasn't there. So I didn't have to deal with it, but there was a hardness for those that didn't go. Right, and uh, and it went both ways. Well, I have to say, you know, Mike, we've I think we've talked for easily in an hour. We're going to have to come back and do a part two because there's so many things to talk about. But I, I do want to say for uh, any officers listening, uh, you and that whole generation, the the courage it took to do that, and as I say, literally to risk everything, uh, and what we've built from it since then I mean now not just things like the referendum or uh, collective bargaining for but just protection of uh, officers uh, where they get a say they get a hearing if there's an issue and yeah. protecting their voices and listening to their voices and uh, you know it's really made for um, it's made the, the police department so much better uh, you know and it and it could not have happened without those steps you guys took and it may have been chaotic and it may have been but it was kind of a natural expression of a lot of frustration. And, uh, but what came out of it was truly, truly amazing. And I hope every officer who uh, listens uh, to this can look back and, and just reflect and realize how much sacrifice uh, was put out there for their rights. Well, a, a 1968 Academy of Graduate, like I was, recruit, 
could not work and do their job today. Right. Just from the stand by the equipment they use and all. We, we just couldn't do it. Right. Uh, when I came on, for every arrest crime, you had a different colored uh, arrest ticket. I can't. If it, you know, I'm, we carry out five and six colors: all, aggravated assault, all, auto theft, burglary. Every one of them was a different color. But the point is, is there is so much. Y'all just have earth-shaking changes, right? That we never had to deal with. Well, Mike, I want to thank you so much uh, for everything that you did, everything that you do as part of Acre. Uh, working with retirees uh, he's truly a, a strong voice and uh, a guider of that and you've done uh, so much good in that position and continue to do so so I want to thank you uh, I want to thank uh, everybody who's listening and uh, we look forward to uh, catching up with you soon thanks Thank you so much for being with us. We had a great conversation with Mike Lee. I learned a lot. In fact, one thing I did learn is that we got to have him back because there's so much more we need to talk about. But uh, that was a great show. We had a great time. We hope you enjoyed it, and we look forward to seeing you next time. (music) 